All right. Uh, so, again, these small compromises make healthy things become sinful. I was actually just speaking about this with one of our other elders, Jim McLean, because we were talking about uh, dancing, right? Because I don't know about you guys, but that kind of funky music that goes between worship and when the service starts kind of makes me want to, to dance a little bit. I won't dance too much because I know I'm really awkward and it's embarrassing for all of you. I'm not embarrassed, though. Um, but, uh, but it makes you want to dance sometimes. And there are churches out there that say no dancing ever because you know what dancing leads to, right? Yeah, you know what dancing leads to, but does it? The thing is, though, like dancing, he, he was telling me he's got a granddaughter, and she is blind, and she dances just like everyone else. She's never seen anybody dance, but she dances just like everyone else. That confirms to me something that I already believed. Dancing is a gift from God, right? It is the abuse of that healthy gift that becomes sinful. And so that's part of what Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about, and he talked about a couple big things in particular. One of Pastor Jim's favorite subjects, sexual immorality. Uh, it's, I feel bad for him because every time, because when you're going line by line through the Bible, through, through a certain book of the Bible, and it talks about sex, well, that's what you're supposed to talk about if you're going line by line. And he came back from some time away, and it was the first topic that he got to get into, right? Now, fortunately for all of you, we're not going to talk about it too much today. Uh, one of the other things that Corinthians really talks about is food sacrificed to idols. Now, it is using the example of food, but I believe what we can learn about idolatry is applicable to everything. So keep in mind that it is going to talk about food sacrificed to idols, but I think idolatry in general is, is a real problem in our society, and we'll dig into that a little bit as we go through everything. Uh, I want you to remember, uh, as we go through this, this idea that these are good things that we have abused. Um, in James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So, dancing, food, sex, those are good things that God created. They are good things to be enjoyed in the manner in which God prescribes in his word. Now, I don't know that he talks a whole lot about dancing in the Bible. I know David danced. Michael can probably talk more about that. He's the, the worship guy. We're going to let him talk about dancing next Sunday. Uh, but, but God created these things for us to enjoy. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, every once in a while in your Bible, if you're reading along, you'll see little footnotes like this one here. And uh, this morning, if it's, if it's relevant to what we're talking about, I want to dig into that footnote. Uh, if it's not something that I'm digging into, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I did not feel like it was relevant. I didn't want to spend the time because, again, we've got 34 verses to cover this morning, so there's a lot. But, um, but here in this instance, uh, this footnote says that some manuscripts say that this is variation due to a shadow of turning. So this is the reminder that, that we are the ones that turn God's good gifts into sin. So we are the ones that do that. God did not create sinful things. God created beautiful things that by our own poor choices, we have turned into sin. And so keep that in mind as we talk about these things, because I'm going to talk about a few things, and I don't want you to feel like I'm, I'm harping on anything or coming down on you if this is something that is important to you or if it's something that you partake in, but I want you to know that there is a way in which we honor God through these things. Now, the, the big thing that I would say is idolatry in our culture is selfishness. Uh, and this, I, I tell you what, there is nothing that makes you see how selfish you are than becoming a father. My gosh, you know how selfish I am as a father? It's, it's ridiculous. And, and I, I, 
not trying to be funny about it either because it's, it is, it's so real. It is so real. I would love to sleep at night. I would love to sleep at night. But when my son is sick and not feeling well, I'm not getting a whole lot of sleep. But sometimes, you know what? Even though he's sick and not feeling well, it's not like he's trying to not feel well, I can get frustrated. How selfish is that? How ridiculous is that? Why dare you be sick and wake me up? Come on. This, this is the problem, not just within our society, but society as a whole, is that we are so, so selfish. I believe we have made an idol out of self. We worship ourselves. We worship our own desires. I was having a pity party the other day, feeling bad for myself, and Jesus just spoke to me and said, that sounds rather selfish, don't you think? Because I think there are all these things, and basically, I wasn't getting my way. I was being a big baby. I didn't get this my way, and I didn't get that my way. Selfishness, pure and simple. Now, I'm not saying that it's just easy to get rid of it, but I want us to be aware of it. The other thing that we're going to talk about is misplaced liberties. So you'll see this word liberty used in Scripture, and this talks about a few things. In, in the passage today and in previous passages, they're talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols as a liberty because uh, Paul, if you were with us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says, it's meat. God made it. It's okay. But if eating that meat causes someone else to sin and impacts their salvation, then you've got misplaced liberties. You need to reprioritize. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. The language that uh, we're using with our toddlers, and this is all on my wife because she's the smart one, really, and she, this is the language that she's broken it down to in our toddler, for our toddlers, people are more important than things. If, if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. If, if you have more than one child, I should say, uh, for those of you that only have one child, just wait. Uh, but did, did you know that there is something inside even a child, a small child, mine aren't quite two yet, and they can be selfish at that age. They can steal a toy at that age. They can push and fight over things, things that were a dollar at Walmart, right? It, the value is almost nothing, but it causes a fight. And so my wife, in her wisdom, has boiled it down to this simple phrase that our two-year-olds can understand. People are more important than things. And if a two-year-old can understand it, I pray that all of you guys can understand it. The hard part is the application, right? Because, man, sometimes I get it mixed up. But people are more important than things. So we're going to dig into the actual passage. What I'd like to do is read through the passage of Scripture. Uh, one of the things that Pastor Jim's been having us do that I would like to emulate this morning is to stand for the reading of the Word, our primary passage. So if you would all please stand. This is a way that we respect and honor the Word of God, which is the truth. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all, the, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. 
nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So once again, people are more important than things. And that's a big, big part of what this passage of scripture is talking about. What I'd like to do is go through this and, and we'll kind of draw out a little bit more because if a two-year-old can understand people are more important than things, I believe we can get a little bit more than that. Do you agree? All right, so here we go. Uh, in verse 1, he says, I don't, do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And by the way, there was a footnote here, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters. That's what the footnote would say. So that means both men and women. It means all y'all, as we say in the South, right? All right, you got to wave your hands like that when you say all y'all. Uh, so I do not want you to be unaware. Now, I, I want to remind everyone that the church in Corinth was not exclusively made up of Jews. There were Gentile believers or Greek believers, sometimes the scriptures say. And so this is part of why he's bringing this up. For the Jews, it should be obvious. This is how they were raised. They know that they were, uh, that their history is all of our fathers were under the cloud, passed through the sea, baptized into Moses. If you know the story of the Exodus, this is where it comes from. But he wants to remind the Jewish believers and also make sure that the Greek believers or the Gentile believers are aware because there's a lot 
Uh, even today, uh, though we look at the Bible in its entirety, having both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of heritage that comes from the Jewish faith that we have inherited, but don't fully understand or appreciate. So he's wanting to make sure that his audience here understands that, and he is discussing the Exodus, uh, when God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt. There have been some fantastic films made about it. Uh, I would recommend that you read the actual book of the Bible, uh, Exodus, but uh, you know, Charlton Heston, years ago, was in The Ten Commandments, which is about that. If you love animated films, The Prince of Egypt, right? That's a good one to watch with your kids. So, so this is about the Exodus. And so, but, but why the history lesson? Aside from wanting to make sure that his, uh, that his Greek and Jewish believers both have that foundation, what is specific about the history lesson in this instance? Because he's coming off of talking about idolatry, right? So why the history lesson? Um, he references fathers. All of our fathers were under the cloud. And as I, as I was saying, there is a rich spiritual heritage. He's saying this is part of who you are, whether it is part of your bloodline or part of your spiritual line, this is part of who you are. So it's part of who we are today as well. When we look at the story of the Exodus, let's not just read it as what happened to those Hebrews so many centuries ago. Look at it as what happened to my people, to the people of God, and what is part of my story, my history, because God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he did it back then, he can do it again today. So it's all applicable. It's a rich spiritual heritage. And we want to learn from those who came before us. So if God worked in the past, he can do so again in the future in the same way. If God had a people that he was working with, that he led through the wilderness, that he corrected and disciplined and helped have heart change, he can do the same for us today. Now, I'm sure that you all can learn from the experiences of others. Um, I learned a lot growing up with brothers. I have two brothers, my older one, John, who is here with us this morning, and my younger brother, Nate. Uh, I was right in the middle, so the best one, obviously. And, uh, and one of the things that, that I did growing up with brothers is identify when one of them got in trouble and what they did to get in trouble and what I did not need to do because I didn't want to get in trouble. I don't know about you guys, but I, I don't like discipline. So at times in my life, I find it easier rather than causing problems to just not cause problems. So as a kid, and I did not do this all the time by any means, I had my fair share of trouble, but, but there were times when I'd say, huh, he did that and the punishment was this. I don't like the punishment. I like it even less than I like doing that thing that he did. So maybe I won't do that thing. Is that, is that reasonable? Can we, can we learn from the mistakes of others? And that's, that's a small scale, but what Paul is giving us here is a large scale because this is an entire people group, millions of people, most scholars believe, right? Growing up with, with brothers was a micro experience of that. When I believe that we can learn from both the successes and the failures of others because we see both all throughout the scriptures, right? We see things that people should do and things that people shouldn't do. Unfortunately, because we are a fallen and sinful people, we see a lot more examples of what not to do, especially in the Old Testament. But we can still learn and grow from those things. So as we get into these, uh, we're, we're going to learn a little bit from what happened with the people of Israel in the Exodus. Uh, it is talking about in verse 4 that they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. Uh, this is from Exodus chapter 17, 
you might remember that, you know, they're in the desert. They're going through the wilderness. I don't know if, if you know this or not. Deserts are not known for an abundance of water. Uh, so what happened is God instructed Moses to hit a rock with his staff, the same staff that Moses held out over the Red Sea, and the waters parted. He hit a rock at God's instruction, and water began pouring out of that rock because God wants to provide for his people. It says that the spiritual rock, it's, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And uh, this is more than a pet rock, okay? This is not, you know, a cute little thing that you put googly eyes on and carry around with you. Uh, this is actually a, a symbol of Christ. You know, this is the rock that was with them. And actually, rabbinical tradition says that the rock followed the Israelites. So... I don't know what kind of mental picture that brings up for you. For me, that's like this rock just kind of rolling along, following all these people wandering through the desert. Now, Scripture does not specifically say that the rock followed Israelites, so that, that is rabbinical tradition. Um, but I'm going to tell you, if you can believe that manna showed up on the ground every morning, and they ate that, and that birds showed up all over the ground, so many that they couldn't hardly move, and they ate those, if God can do that, can't God make a rock follow them around? right? He had a pillar of cloud lead them by day and a pillar of fire lead them by night. Pillar is not a small thing, by the way. This is a pillar, and that's not a very big pillar even. If God can do that, he can probably have a rock follow them around, even if it had googly eyes. So God had the rock follow the Israelites, uh, and the rock was Christ. Now, beyond just an understanding of, of Jesus's role there, this tells us if the rock was following them around, right, if the rock was with them throughout their journey, then Jesus was ever present in the wilderness. Sometimes we, we make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is with us only in certain times, right? Uh, if it's a time of difficulty or a time of just we are on a spiritual high, like worship was really great this morning, I really felt Jesus. Did you know he's there when you don't feel him? He is ever present with us today. He's ever-present then, he's ever-present today. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we listen any better than the Israelites? Even though they had Jesus all the time and we have Jesus all the time, do we listen any better than them? Years ago, I was, I was reading through part of the Old Testament and reading through just the nonsense that the Israelites were up to. Because if, if you read it, it's like, and the Israelites followed God, and then they didn't follow God. They did some really bad things, and then they followed God. That's the Caleb paraphrase. Um, but... Uh, I thought, man, silly Israelites. And then the Holy Spirit just prompted me. I was like, Caleb, don't, don't you do that. Caleb was really following God, and then he wasn't really following God, and then Caleb was really following God. And you know what? We have the same struggles today. We have the same struggles. Uh, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So as we read through the, the Old Testament Exodus story and their, their journey through the wilderness, uh, most is an understatement. There were precisely two of the Israelites who left Egypt that got into the promised land. Joshua and Caleb. Two out of millions of people. Now, there were millions more that went in with them, but that was a generation that came after 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Everybody who left Egypt, who saw the miracles, who experienced God, died in the wilderness because they chose sin over God. God was not pleased with them. So you can receive good gifts. You can witness miracles. You can experience Jesus and still make bad choices. 
And that's what happened to those in the wilderness, those Israelites in the wilderness. Doesn't that make you feel encouraged? Right? Amen, brother. But the thing is, it's true in reverse, too. Because I believe you can struggle with sin. You can make bad choices. You can lose everything, and God can turn it around. Whenever I'm feeling bad for myself, and, oh, man, I messed up, I did this, I did that, I think of King David. I, just so we're clear, I am not a murderous adulterer. Okay? Good. Yeah. It's something that you want to make sure of. Uh, King David was. Did you know that? King David committed adultery and then killed the woman's husband to cover it up. But he repented, and he is known today as the most famous king of Israel, and more importantly, a man after God's heart. So when I'm feeling bad for myself, I think, well, I didn't go as far as King David, so I must be okay. God can still forgive me. I can still get through this. And so can you. Now, this word overthrown that we see here uh, in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, is the word katastronumi, uh, which means to strew over, over the ground, to prostrate, to, to slay, or to lay down. And uh, we're probably inferring here specifically the slay uh, definition because, uh, as, as we saw when we read through the scripture at first, we're talking about a lot of death here. Unfortunately, that was the consequence of Israel's poor choices. Uh, however, these are examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did because we do want to learn from the successes and the failures of others. Now, when it comes to this for me, I want to be able to tell my kids, do what I did, right? I don't know if, if you have kids or what your history is, um, but if, if you are a, a good parent, you probably want your children to have good lives, to lead good lives, and probably hope that you can tell them, hey, do what I did, follow my example, not don't do what I did. I made some big mistakes, please don't do what I did. I think that if they can see, hey, you can get through this, you can make good choices, you can say, do what I did, and which is what Paul tells the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But that's the thing, is if I want to tell my kids, do what I did, I have to do what Jesus does. And so that's, that's part of my motivation, is my kids. I want to say, hey, this, there's a better way. You can do this. I did it. Let's do this together. But what will your legacy be? Whether you have children or not, what is the impact that you want to leave on your world? It is all about Jesus. And are you going to leave a legacy that leads people to Jesus or a legacy that leaves people running from Jesus? There's not a lot of middle ground. In verse 7 here, uh, he begins digging into idolatry. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, now, this word play in, in the Greek uh, and uh, looking at the original verse that it's quoted from is inferring sexual immorality. They were playing in very inappropriate ways. Um, and this is the story of the golden calf is actually where this comes from in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, so you may remember that Moses goes up on uh, Mount Sinai, and this is where he receives the Ten Commandments. Uh, incredible, incredible moment, but he's gone for a long time. And the Israelites begin to wonder, what's going on? Is, is Moses okay? Is he even alive? And so Aaron, in all of his wisdom, says, give me all your gold jewelry. 
and he makes a golden calf. We are months, maybe, from leaving Egypt, and they already have their first idol. Goodness. Let me correct myself. I think we're actually at a year by Mount Sinai, but, but man, a year, that's all they got? Come on. But do I do any better? Do you do any better? Can we make it a year without turning something into an idol? So uh, I'm going to read here from Exodus 32 just to give us the appropriate context. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, just like Paul quoted. And the Lord said to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have corrupted themselves. They are engaging in sinful activity, and they have taken this thing and said, it's a god. I mean, it, it's like if, if I had a cinder block. Hey, cinder block, let me bow down to you. It, it, that's the equivalent. Sure, it's a shiny cinder block, but it's, it's worthless. But that's what they chose to do. Idolatry leads to death and destruction, and this is what happened in that instance, is that uh, they, they were killed. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, this word idolaters uh, has a couple definitions in the Greek. It's the Greek word idolatres. Uh, it's a worshiper of false gods or an idolater. Golden calf, that's a false god, right? A covetous man as a worshiper of mammon. Now, this, I think, is probably the more relevant definition to us today. I don't know about any of you guys, but I, I don't have, like, little statues that I bow down to or anything. I, I imagine you don't. But what we probably struggle with and may not even realize as an idol is this idea of covetousness and mammon. Now, mammon is uh, another Greek word that means money. Uh, and so in uh, Matthew 6, verse 24, and, and here, here's a quick tip. If, if you're ever unclear about what something in the Bible is saying, look elsewhere in the Bible to help define it. Don't look on Google unless you're Googling for Bible verses. But the Bible helps define itself. So if we see this word mammon and we don't know what it means, we can see what it means here in Matthew. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And if we look at the footnote here, it's the Greek word mammon, which is a Semitic word for money or possessions. So if you love money or you love stuff, you got to check that. Do you love that more than you love God? This is a picture of being greedy for financial gain or, or greedy in another area is that this is something that, that you are giving your affections to. And anything can be an idol, absolutely anything. Uh, years ago, I had a, a mentor who um, helped me realize that anything can be an idol by, by telling me, show me your schedule and your checkbook and I'll show you what your God is. Now, for those of you in the room that don't know what a checkbook is, back in the time when dinosaurs roamed the earth, we had these little pieces of paper that we would write something on and say, for example, this is $20, and we'd give it to somebody, and they could go get real money with that. That's what a checkbook is. Um, but, but this just really stuck with me because it's all about time and finances, right? Where do you invest your time and finances? Now, I'm, I'm removing things like your occupation here, right? Because you have no choice but to work if you want to have anything like a roof over your head or food on the table. So let's, let's look at this from the perspective of available time and finances, right? When you have time to yourself, when you have a little bit of spending money, what does it go to? Now, I'll be honest with you, one of the places that I struggle with this is entertainment. Now, I mentioned earlier that I, I don't want to harp on anything, 
and I'm not saying entertainment is bad, but it's really easy for me to get caught up in the latest movie, the latest TV shows. If you know me, you know I'm a big nerd, right? I love comic book movies, I love Star Wars, and I get really excited about these things. And if I'm honest, sometimes I get a little too excited, right? Sometimes, and Michael's laughing because he's like, yes, Caleb, yes, you do. Please stop talking about Star Wars. But, but it, it's true. Sometimes we get too invested in these things. And I don't know what you look at for entertainment. Maybe, maybe it's binging uh, uh, your favorite show on Netflix, right? And in and of itself, these things are not evil. Entertainment is not evil. But when it takes precedence over more important things like your relationship with God, then it has become an idol. So I would say, again, where do you invest your time and finances? And take a moment to think about that. And again, this, this perspective of when you have a little bit of spending money, when you have some, some free time, where do you invest those things? Because I believe that is what you worship. As we continue in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 8, uh, he digs into uh, another kind of struggle that the Israelites were having and that we struggle with today. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, I don't have a specific reference to this in Scripture. It's a little bit debatable uh, among scholars where they are talking about this. But, but really, guys, if you look at the Old Testament and you look at the story of the Israelites, there's many stories where they have partaken in sexual immorality and died because of it because of, of their poor choices. Um, and sexual immorality is the Greek word pornuo, and it's uh, to prostitute one's body to the lust of another, to give oneself to unlawful sexual intercourse. Um, I, I think that it's pretty clear, right? And I'm not gonna dig into this. Pastor Jim's the one who gets to talk about sex all the time. I'll leave that to him. Um, but, but we do need to understand that this is a problem. Uh, and again, though, this is an abuse of what God created for us to enjoy. God said that sex is between a man and wife in the context of marriage, right? And that's a beautiful thing. And there's so much freedom in that, right? But when we go outside of marriage or when we engage in sexual activity with someone other than our spouse, that is when it has become an abuse and an idol and something that is going to lead us to destruction. And uh, if, we, if we look back at the uh, definition here, one word stood out to me is this word lust, uh, and it reminded me that Jesus holds us to an even higher standard, not just engaging in immoral sexual activity, but lust itself. Uh, if we look at Matthew 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus uh, is speaking, and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Ladies, I'm going to flip it on its head as well. Uh, I think, ladies, if you look at a man with lustful intent, it's the same thing, right? This is about a heart condition. As Jesus continues, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Is that a little intense, right? When you, when you get down to it, like cutting off an appendage, removing an eye? That is very intense. But I have to wonder how many marriages would be saved if we fought lust with such intensity. Because remember, it's destruction by degrees. 
Nobody says, hey, I'm going to become an adulterer. It's that lingering look, that ad that comes up as you're scrolling on Facebook. You just look a little bit and maybe you click on it. It's not going to hurt anybody, right? Maybe not. That little degree of saying, well, maybe I'll just take a look. Maybe I'll just think about that. Because a lot of this starts in our thought life, right? If you are thinking about things that you shouldn't, now, think about something. The temptation is not a sin, but when you begin to dwell on that thought, it eventually leads to action. And I believe that if we had Jesus' level of intensity to say, absolutely cut off something that makes me sin, we would see a lot less divorce in our society. We would see a lot marriages, a lot more marriages that are strong and healthy, and that picture of Christ in the church that they're supposed to be. Now, let, let's, let's get real here. Most of us, it's not our hand or our eye that causes us to sin, right? So what, what can we do that is a little bit different? Is it a certain website? Is it social media? Is it a certain device? You always stumble when you have your phone in your hand, right? Do you need to? This is drastic. Do you need to get rid of the smartphone and switch to a flip phone? You laugh. Some people at what? That's my life. But is it better to take drastic measures than to ruin a relationship forever? Continuing in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now, remember Christ is with them. We we've seen that Christ is ever present in the wilderness and this word serpents gives us a clue as to where this story comes from. This is actually uh, a really interesting story to me personally um, that doesn't get a lot of attention, so I want to dig into it real quick. Numbers 21, beginning in verse 5, the people spoke against God and against Moses. This is their sin. They're speaking against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Wait a minute, there's no food, but we loathe this worthless food? What? Weren't we just talking about manna and birds in the wilderness? God provided. God had water coming out of a rock. Come on. There's food and water. They just like to complain, but so do we, honestly. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses, Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So part of why this story is so interesting to me is because those of you who are in the medical industry see this symbol all the time. This is the medic alert, right? This is... For, for something that would probably not identify itself as a religious organization, they sure have some religious imagery on what gets put out there. So for people who are diabetic or people who have hemophilia or, or any other number of things, they wear a medic alert so that in an emergency situation, that first responder knows how to respond. Oh, I need to make sure and give this person this, not that. And this is a symbol of salvation. A symbol of salvation that some of us wear every single day, not even realizing the significance of it. And 
the, the reminder here and the challenge, especially for those of us that, that wear one of these, is that it, it is that symbol of salvation and it is a call to repentance because repentance leads to salvation. This did not happen. Moses did not build this thing, this, this snake to look upon until the people, people of Israel repented. We have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. There is this heart change. Granted, it's in response to some pretty serious consequences, but you know, sometimes we need serious consequences before we make a heart change. So, Moses makes it, and if a serpent bit anyone, they would look at this bronze serpent and live. What's really interesting here is that even after their repentance, they are still dealing with consequences. And the, the hard truth is that sometimes our poor choices mean that we continue to live with consequences. And that was the case for the Israelites at that time. Sometimes when we repent and we, we have that heart change and we do things a different way, sometimes those consequences get removed. Sometimes not. But I would say that it's better to live with consequences than dying in sin. Wouldn't you? If, if those are my choices, I'll live with the consequences. First uh, Corinthians 10.10 10. He's continuing to give all these examples, uh, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, again, Israel grumbled a lot. <laughs> a lot of them died. So there's not a specific reference I can give you for this one. Let's just say Israel made some bad choices. Can we agree on that? The, the thing that we also have to agree on, though, that we must acknowledge is that we make some bad choices. We make bad choices sometimes, but we can choose to learn from mistakes. We can learn from our own mistakes. We can learn from the mistakes of others. Uh, verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So this is an example for us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul wants us to know that no one is immune to mistakes. Excuse me. It begins with those little compromises taking that little step away from where you know you should be, and it leads to big issues. But I believe that we can take hope because it doesn't have to end there. We may have stepped away, but by the grace of God, we can step back. Verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. One of the, the lies that uh, we often believe, that I believe for many years myself, is that I'm the only one dealing with this, right? But you're not the only one dealing with this. You have not been tempted by anything that is not common to man. I don't care what it is, whether it is lying or stealing or an addiction to drugs or pornography or something else, you're not the only one dealing with it. And that is part of the invitation to be a body of Christ is to walk alongside those who have gone through it, who maybe are even still struggling with it, but they are trying to follow Jesus. You're not the only one, and there is a way out. Now, I can't help but think of uh, John 14, 6, when I hear this, this way out language. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is our way out. Now, that's the simple Sunday school answer, right? No, I, I worked in children's ministry for years, and if a kid didn't know the answer to a question, the response was always, Jesus? And you know what? 90% of the time, that's right. 
because it is about Jesus. Um, Jesus also said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near uh, or is at hand. Is near is what's in my brain. That's the version I memorized. Uh, but uh, this is at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. The first thing that he says is repent. So if we know that Jesus is our way of escape and the first thing he says in his public ministry is repent, that gives us a pretty good idea of what we should be doing. Now, the idea of repentance is not as well understood in our culture as it should be. Um, one of the best ways that I have heard about it is to think of it as a ship on the ocean. Repentance is turning this ship around. You're out in the middle of the Atlantic. There's a problem. Turn this ship around. It is a slow and deliberate move. Perhaps not slow. Repentance does not necessarily need to be slow, but it is deliberate. It is a conscious effort that you are making a choice that this is not the way that I'm going to live anymore. It does not happen by accident. In Paul's language, he says, flee from idolatry. In uh, my men's group, uh, a couple years ago, I had a guy come up with this term, Joseph it. If, if you know the story of Joseph, uh, again, uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery. Uh, God blessed him even in slavery, and he is the head of his master's household. But the master's wife has eyes for Joseph, and Joseph isn't going to have any of it. And when she tries to seduce him, he runs so quickly that he leaves his jacket behind. He's like a cartoon. Joseph, it, get out of there. I love that. So what I want to talk about is how to undo the compromises, because I believe that with God's help, we can undo the compromises. We can correct that misstep. And the first step is to Joseph it, to repent, to get out of there and turn around. In verse 15 of Corinthians 10, Paul says, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, the Corinthians had a fairly high opinion of themselves, and so he's, he's kind of leaning into that a little bit. He's saying, if you're sensible people, then listen, right? Uh, I also will say that I think if you're here this morning or if you're watching online, you must have at least some sense, right? If, if you are here wanting to know more about the Word of God, you must have some sense, so good for you. Um, I think uh, as we continue here, as if we're people of sense, we can see here in verse 16, Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? If, if you're not familiar with these elements, this is communion. When we, uh, oftentimes in, in churches today, we have the grape juice, not the wine, right? Um, and the little wafer cracker. But the idea is that we are emulating Christ's last supper with his disciples. And this is a partaking in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is a powerful symbol of saying, Jesus, you died, and I am raised to new life with you. Uh, it's, it's also true in baptism. Uh, baptism is a beautiful picture of this because it is uh, as someone lays down into the water is like they are being laid down into the grave and when they come up out of the water they are coming up into new life it's beautiful i love it it's that death of the old and the birth of the new so when we repent we are then to partake in the new life that jesus offers so when we undo the compromises we repent and then we join jesus in new life that is what he promises. If you read the Bible at all, you know that Jesus says you can have new life. And in John 10, 10, he says life to the full. I believe that can start here and now, not just in heaven. We can join Jesus in new life today. In verse 17, Paul says, there is one bread, 
Uh, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So in addition to joining Jesus in new life, or as part of joining Jesus in new life, I should say, that means being one with the body of believers. Jesus is talking about, uh, or Paul is talking about being one with the body of believers like a local community here, because a body helps care for one another. When you are struggling with something, when you are hurting, when you're depressed, that's what your church family is for. In Galatians chapter 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is part of the body of Christ. This is part of what it means to be a believer. And I know that the world has gone through a lot over the last couple years here, and that for some people, they, they don't feel like they can be physically present with a body of believers. You've got to find a way to connect with, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't care if it's through a chat room. I don't care if it's in person, but you have to connect with your brothers and sisters in Christ because God did not create you to do this alone. We are supposed to bear one another's burdens. So this is actually a sub-point here in Undoing Compromises because this is part of joining Jesus in a new life is being part of a local body of believers. It's incredibly important. Verse 18, Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. Now, this footnote here uh, helps us understand he's not just saying think of Israel, but think of Israel, consider Israel according to the flesh. That is their sinful nature. So in their sinful nature, are they not participants in the altar? We were singing this morning about uh, you know, the altar of our lives, right? That, that we offer Christ everything on the altar of our lives. And what is happening in, in that moment, both in the song and as it's discussing here in Scripture, is that a relationship is being formed. But what are you forming a relationship with? Who are you forming a relationship with? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Paul's covered this in chapter 8. No, food is food. An idol, it's a cinder block. It's, it's nothing. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I think we can all agree that would be a bad idea. We don't want to be participants with demons. Again, there's nothing wrong with the food. Food is food. The idol itself is meaningless, but the act of worshiping anything other than God invites the demonic. Now, we need to remember that this idea of worship is not exclusive to what we would consider a spiritual experience, right? Let me bring it back to money for a minute, right? Money is something that we can worship. Maybe we, we worship it in that we want to keep spending and spending and spending and we get ourselves in mountains of debt because we cannot control our appetite for more. Maybe it's that we keep earning and earning and earning and we're a workaholic because we just have to have more of it saved up for something. But money can be something that is worshipped. But in and of itself, money is amoral. That means it is without morals. Money's not evil. Money's not good. It's a thing. It exists. Money exists. That's what all we can say about money. Jesus said it's the love of money that leads to all kinds of evil. It's the worship of money that is immoral. So it's a heart condition. I'll bring it back to entertainment for me. It's not 
the latest Spider-Man movie, which looks super cool com coming out, by the way, right? Comes out in December. Super cool. The love of Spider-Man. Spider-Man is, is not evil. In fact, many would say he is good, right? The film itself is neither good nor evil, right? It's, it's a thing. It exists. But if it gets too much of our heart, if it gets too much of our finances, if it gets too much of our thought life, it has become something that we worship and an idol which leads to death. Anything that you seek more than, uh, more than you do God is an idol. So earlier I gave you the formula that, that worship equals time plus money, right? Wherever your, your free time, your free money goes to, that is what you worship. Here's another way to think about it. What do you find yourself thinking about the most? Because what your thought life dwells on, and what I would say is as an exercise, don't, don't just sit and think, what do I think about? Because then you'll start thinking about thinking and it gets really complicated. It's like, don't think about pink elephants. Um, but if you can just kind of note when your mind begins to wonder, where do your thoughts go? Do they go to godly things or do they go to ungodly things? And again, there are things that are not ungodly, but if we're thinking about them too much, they have become an idol. The thing that you think about the most is what you worship the most. And Paul makes it very clear. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do we really think that, that we are stronger than Jesus? Do we think, well, Jesus you may not have been able to, uh, to deal with that, but, you know, I can handle it. Jesus, you may not have been able to partake in that, but I can do it. I'm, I've got this. You're fooling yourself. We're not stronger than the Lord. And it's not a worship buffet. It's a little bit of the demonic, a little bit of the, the godly. Mmm, yummy. That's not how it works. So we are called to worship only God. As we undo the compromise, we must repent, join Jesus in new life, and part of that is being part of a local body of believers, and then worship only God. Now, this is not a one-and-done process. This is a daily, hourly battle, sometimes by the minute. But this is part of why we join that local body of believers. Do you know that if you are struggling with something, you can make a phone call to any number of people in this building or any number of people watching online and say, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm struggling with this thing. I think I'm about to do something that I really don't want to do. And you'll get some help. You'll get somebody who will fight alongside you. That is why we are part of this body, and that is how we can help one another worship only God. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So don't get so caught up in what is allowed that you miss what is right. Because we do this all the time. This, this idea of all things are lawful. And Paul addresses this early in Scripture. Yeah, there is nothing inherently evil about food. There's nothing inherently evil about alcohol. There's nothing inherently evil about a lot of things. But is it what is right? Just because I'm allowed to do this, should I partake in it? People are more important than things. Is someone else's salvation more important than my desire to have a beer, for instance, right? If, if my having an alcoholic beverage makes somebody else question their faith, wait a minute, 
I didn't think that you were that kind of person, then maybe I don't need to have that. Sometimes that's hard, but your liberty is not worth someone else's salvation. And this is water, by the way, for anybody who is wondering. Your liberty is not worth someone else's salvation. I put this word liberty in quotes because I, I think that we need to remember that sometimes these things that we think of as liberties or, or freedoms, if we're to use our American language, it's my right, it's my freedom. Is your freedom worth more than someone else's salvation? So we need to let go of what leads to sin. Repent, turn the ship around, join Jesus in a new life. Worship only God and let go of what leads to sin, not just for ourselves, but for others. Uh, you know, again, if, if I find that I am always sinning, uh, if, if I am looking at a certain website, then I need to get rid of that website, right? I don't visit that site anymore. I'm done with it. Or if I, excuse me, if I'm around a group of people and I find that it really is concerning to them if I have a beer, I'm not going to have a beer I'm not going to do something that is going to have somebody else's, uh, that is going to impact somebody else's salvation. And it could be painful because sometimes we really like our liberties, right? Sometimes we really like it, but it's better than the alternative. Remember, Jesus said to, if, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away because it is better for you to enter eternity missing something than for you to not enter eternity at all. Or if we're looking at it in the context of relationship again, it is better for you to enter into eternity having missed out on a couple things in life than for your friend or your neighbor to not enter into eternity at all. Now Paul gets into some practical application here. Uh, in verse 25 he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Meat is meat. Eat it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is something that we see in the scriptures. That's why it's in quotes. God made it. It's good. It's okay. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. If you know that meat is meat or, you know, if you're a vegetarian, broccoli is broccoli. I don't know what vegetarians eat for a meal. I, I couldn't do it. But if you know that, that food is food, eat whatever's put in front of you. Don't, don't let it be a stumbling block for you. However, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Now, in this context here, uh, he was talking about being invited to dinner by an unbeliever. And so... What he's saying is that if an unbeliever even says this has been offered in sacrifice, they may know, hey, if you're a Christian, you don't do certain things, right? So let's take it back to entertainment for a minute because this is one of the things that I typically do. Um, I don't get invited to go to R-rated movies because typically I don't watch R-rated movies. There's a personal boundary for myself, right? Because typically if it's rated R, it's got some stuff in it that I don't need in my life but it also becomes a boundary for other people. You're a Christian. You don't watch stuff like this, do you? If I say, well, you know, sometimes it's okay. Hmm, I thought, I thought you were different. 
again, this is, this is going to be per the individual. Just because that's a, a choice I make doesn't mean it's a choice that you make, but I'm not going to let it be a choice that causes somebody else to sin or causes somebody else to, to not have faith in Jesus. You're being watched by believers and unbelievers both. Your brothers and sisters here, they're watching. Are you living what you're talking? And so are the people around you that are not believers. Do you really walk the talk? Are you who you say you are? As we continue uh, verses 29 and 30, why should my liberty be be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul's being facetious here. He's already answered this question. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? He knows that it's better to, to not eat meat in this instance or to not do this or that because it might impact somebody else's salvation. Now, in the right context, it's not going to be an issue for somebody. But when it is, you need to avoid that because you can enjoy those liberties, but love first. It is more loving for me to not take a recovering alcoholic to some place that serves alcohol, right? Even if that's not a struggle for me, maybe I don't struggle with alcoholism, I'm not going to take a recovering alcoholic to the bar. That's foolishness, and it is unkind and unloving. We need to enjoy our liberties, but love first. So the final step here is to place love before liberty. This is how we undo the compromises. We repent, we join Jesus in new life, which is in part joining that body of believers. We worship only God, we let go of what leads to sin, and we place love before liberty because we want to love ourselves and love our brothers and sisters in Christ and love those who don't know Jesus yet more than we love things. So Paul has some final thoughts here as we wrap up. Zoe would have told me I should have wrapped up 15 minutes ago. Verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It brings God glory when you place love before liberty. It brings God glory when you make choices that honor him and remove things from your life that might cause you to sin. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We want to be like Jesus. That's the only way. If I bring it back to my kids again, if I want to tell them, do what I do, then I have to do what Jesus does. If you want others to see your life and follow Jesus, you need to do what Jesus does. It is all about Jesus. And we sing these songs and we talk about, you know, giving God all the glory and Jesus this and Jesus that. And you know why? It's because Jesus is the only one who can. He is the only one who can change your life for eternity. You can make good choices that move towards that, but Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. It is all about Jesus. So if you want to undo the compromises, if you are somewhere on this path, whether it's the beginning and you need to repent, or at the end and you need to learn to place love before liberty, I want to invite you to pray today because I believe that you can begin today to grow closer to Jesus if you are trying to, to course correct and remove the compromises from your life. So I'd love to pray for you, and I'd love to invite you, if, if you are here this morning or if you're online and something is stirring in your heart and God is telling you it's time, then please, please respond. Whether you know Jesus yet or not, 
please take a moment to encounter him this morning, to, to speak with somebody, to pray with somebody. We have a prayer team that would love to pray with you. If, if you don't know Jesus, to help you meet him. And if you do know Jesus, to help you know him better. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you love us. Thank you that you help us to be, to be better people, to live better lives, to live the fullness of life that you have called us to. Thank you that you walk us through this process of repentance and holiness so that we can be more like you and we can experience the goodness of God in our lives. I ask that you would stir in our hearts those, those areas where you are ready to work. I ask that you'd help us to respond and to trust you. Lord Jesus, we give it all over to you. We love you and we praise you. In your name, amen.